Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're doing something a little bit different, guys. We're doing Michael Sellos. Michael Sellos is an 11th century Byzantine political theorist. The 11th century, the 10 hundreds. He was great at Greek, but very limited Latin abilities. A lot of the medieval guys in the West, they have great Latin. They're bad at Greek. Sellos is the opposite. He has a lot of Greek. He's bad at Latin. He also was very personally involved in Byzantine politics. He served as a judge in the provinces. Then he joined the imperial chancellery in Constantinople. He became an advisor to Constantine IX, and he was chief of the philosophers at the University of Constantinople. He fell out of favor in 1054 and joined a monastery on a mountain in Bithynia. This was possibly to shore up confidence in his religious beliefs. He was very interested in Platonism, preferring Plato by far to Aristotle. And his level of interest in Platonism was somewhat suspicious, and his enemies at court would often accuse him of being religiously unorthodox. He was recalled to court by the Empress Theodora, and then continued to advise emperors from there forward. He tutored the Emperor Michael VII as a boy, and he helped Michael VII become emperor in 1071. Um, He did this at the expense of the Emperor Romanos IV. And he kind of leaves out of the narrative and minimizes in the narrative uh, in because we're going to do the main text is the chronographia, which is Michael Sellos's history of Byzantine emperors. He minimizes some of what goes on here. Romanos IV is the emperor in charge of the Byzantine army at Manzikert, the infamous battle where the Byzantines are badly defeated by the Seljuk Turks, right? So... Romanos loses this battle, and he loses it in part because one of his juniors, John Ducas, one of the Caesars, the junior co-emperors, betrays him at the battle. John Ducas takes, uh, declares that the emperor is dead when he's not dead, and takes 30,000 troops off the field in the middle of the fight. This, of course, puts Romanos IV in a terrible position, and Romanos IV is forced to fight for his life which he does very bravely. He doesn't flee. He makes a stand. His horse is killed out from under him. He fights the Seljuks hand-to-hand combat. By all accounts, he fights very bravely and courageously. He eventually, it's discovered that he is the emperor. He's surrounded. He receives a wound to his hand, and then Romanos is captured, right? And the Seljuk, uh, the Seljuk Turks treat him very kindly. They ransom him, and he gets released. But when he gets released... Michael Sellos and John Ducas uh, conspired to put Michael VII on the throne, and they defeat Romanos IV and send him packing. So Michael VII begins his reign having uh, with advisors who have betrayed the previous emperor. And Michael Sellos is one of these advisors who has betrayed Romanos IV. And Michael VII, as it happens, does not do a great job. Although Michael Sellos praises Michael VII heavily, in part because Michael VII is believed to be the sitting emperor at the time that the chronography is being finished up, Michael VII acknowledges territorial losses to the Seljuks. When he faces rebellions in the late 1070s, he abdicates rather than fights. He becomes a monk uh, and is replaced by Nikephoros III. Uh, Nikephoros III is then deposed by Alexios Komnenos with the help of John Ducas, the same emperor who betrayed Romanos IV. As it happens, John Ducas also betrayed Michael VII. He rebelled against Michael VII, and when Michael VII beat John Ducas, instead of disposing of John Ducas, he sends him to a monastery. So John Ducas betrays three emperors in a row. He betrays Romanos IV by withdrawing at Manzikert. He rebels against Michael VII, and then he conspires with Alexios to depose Nikephoros III. So John Ducas gets away with rebelling against three emperors in a row without ever himself succeeding in becoming emperor. Just a fun fact there. Uh, So the emperor Michael VII does not do anything like nearly as well as Michael Selos makes out in the chronography. And uh, it's important to note 
that not only does Michael Sellos put Michael VII on the throne, but Michael Sellos tutors Michael VII when Michael VII is a child. So at many points in the chronography, Michael Sellos argues that the Byzantine emperors need to be educated better, that there's been problems with the ways they've been educated and that they need a better kind of education to develop a higher kind of virtue. The only person who receives this education directly from Michael Sellos is Michael VII, and Michael VII is not a good emperor by any estimation. So we're going to talk about Michael Sellos's view for how politics and philosophy are to be combined, but I want us to all be aware when we start that it is not obvious that this works. It is really not obvious that it works, in part because Michael Sellos tried to implement it, and it didn't go very well. So there are a few... Uh, bits of this, kind of core bits I want to outline before we open it up to Alex. So to start, that there's a fundamental distinction Michael Sellos draws between the soul by itself, which is the soul in its divine condition, and the soul with the body, which he frames as the political or human condition, right? So the soul by itself is the divine life, and the soul with the body is the political or human life. And the fact that political and human are both used together here suggests that human beings are fundamentally political in some sense. So once the soul is with the body, for Michael Sellis, the soul either gives itself to the passions of the body or it embraces a moderate attitude to those passions. And these are the two lots for human souls. They either are immoderate or they're moderate. So you have a couple of binaries here at the start, the soul by itself, the soul with the body. And then within the soul with the body, you have the immoderate lot and the moderate lot. So because politics is a feature of the soul with the body, politics is a consequence of embodiment. So it's a process of managing bodies and managing the consequences of bodies for souls. So Michael Sellis adopts a hierarchy of virtues that is similar to the Neoplatonists that we've previously done. It's similar to Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus. The lower orders uh, relate to the soul in the body, and the higher orders relate to the soul by itself. So the lower orders of virtues include the natural virtues, the ethical virtues, which are those that you obtain through practice, through experience, and then the political virtues, which are virtues that you obtain through reason. Then the higher virtues, which are to do with the soul by itself, are the more theoretical, more intellective, more contemplative virtues, the theurgic virtues. Michael Sellos uses the th concept of theurgic, which is reminiscent of Iamblichus. So we, through this, we can surmise some influence from Iamblichus, although it's not exactly clear uh, whether Michael Sellos would position himself, say, with Iamblichus against Plotinus or with Plotinus against Iamblichus in the ways in which a lot of modern scholars try to break those apart and turn them into two different strands. Uh, there, there do seem to be some differences we've discussed on previous episodes, differences between Iamblichus and Plotinus, but uh, those differences don't seem to be resolved in Michael Sellos or really addressed directly in the work of Michael Sellos, although I may be missing or, or unfamiliar with some something somewhere. To my knowledge, that is not resolved in Michael Sellos. So, politics then is, is the order of the inner republic of soul being extended to the outer republic. So, in the republic, Plato does this analogy between the soul and the city. Michael Sellos takes that analogy very seriously and rather literally. So, it is literally the case that the republic of soul is ordered and then that order is extended through politics to those who are unable to order their own souls of their own accord, right? So the lot that embraces moderation then has a duty to share with the lot that is immoderate the benefits of, of moderation. So the order that the ruler has in the ruler's own soul is shared with the realm through politics, right? So those who have the moderate lot take care of those who have the immoderate lot through the political system. Now, because it's framed like this, because uh, that the virtues are something to be developed through the education process, this results in a chronographia which frames imperial politics as largely the consequence of the emperor's character, the consequence of the emperor's ability to manage their soul. So emperors who 
are not able to manage their souls, who have the, the immoderate lot, that immoderation and intemperance spreads to the empire. And in many ways, this is reminiscent of Roman narratives about decadence in the empire. If the elite is decadent or if the emperor is decadent, then that's reflected in the whole realm because the outer republic is based on the inner republic. And in some ways, this may even sound similar to people who uh, might remember uh, discussions that I've previously been involved with with Gandhi, where Gandhi talks about how you need individual Swaraj, individual self-rule to have uh, home rule, to have national self-rule. In a similar way, the emperor has to get their soul right so that the realm can have its soul, uh, can have the souls of all in the realm right. And this way of pitching the relationship between politics and Neoplatonism, uh, it's an interesting way of pitching it, but you may notice it's highly focused on the individual character of the emperor, on the way the emperor is brought up. So it puts a lot of weight on the emperor's personal education, personal character traits. And as you read through the chronographia, you are not going to see a lot of discussion of political economy, the geopolitical situation. You would not know from reading the chronographia what other states border the Byzantine Empire, what the Byzantine Empire's relationship at different points was with those states, except insofar as certain emperors go and do things. And you occasionally hear about those things because they're examples of the emperor's character traits. Right. So it's very focused on character traits. And so this is a, a form of Platonism applied to politics, which really centers the individual. And to some degree, this is probably a consequence of the Byzantine political system being a monarchy. So it does put a significant amount of weight on individual emperors. But I, one of the things I want to get into in this episode is other ways of conceiving of this, other ways of doing a kind of Platonist fusion of um, politics with philosophy that don't put so much weight on character. Because when you do put this weight on character, someone like Michael VII, who has received a quite extensive philosophical training, it can be easy to assume that that in some way will translate to politics. And there are many points in the chronography where Michael Sellers makes the point that it doesn't straightforwardly translate to politics, that there are a lot of people who seem to have all sorts of higher virtues, but aren't actually outfitted for politics. And this critique probably should be applied to Michael VII. It's not applied to Michael VII, in part because Michael Sellis is personally involved with Michael VII, and in part because the chronographia is in all likelihood published during the reign of Michael VII, making any criticism of Michael VII especially verbatim. So with that as a kind of prelude, you know, Alex wrote something up for this. We kind of, you know, I, I commented on it a little bit, and I kind of want to hear you know, how Alex thinks all of this uh, fits or doesn't fit together. So, Alex, what did you what did you think? Well, I, I could see myself in a lot of the different character traits of all the emperors, and the way he talks about a certain behavior as being kind of reliably good or bad, depending on whether it refers to a certain character trait or not, kind of makes me think maybe there's like just psychological. It's like a psychological science, virtue ethics for the ancients. It's like a a cultural assumption that. Yeah. If, if you have certain mind states, this will be a reliable cause for behavior and people will be able to see the mind state in the behavior. So really about reason and the passions and things like that. Um, well, so I think that that is a, a fair characterization of some of the excesses of Michael Sellis's own work, that sometimes it feels a little bit like an armchair psych theory on YouTube. You know, like oftentimes on YouTube, you can find these channels with these kind of armchair psych theorists who want to break up all of people into just categories. And, you know, it's a, a seductive way of thinking about people because then you can just categorize. Like uh, there's a YouTube channel from a guy called HG uh, Tudor who uh, tries to categorize everybody as either narcissists, narcissistic individuals, normals, or empaths. And he makes these big, long video series about various celebrities trying to determine who they are based on the evidence that he gathers from obsessively consuming content about them. Uh, and he has a very, very posh English accent. And, and so he, a lot of people are kind of drawn in by his whole 
aesthetic and demeanor. Uh, and he just, he tries to categorize everybody. And in a similar kind of way, you could frame the, the psychological model that you get out of Michael Sellos that way. It's, you know, some people are living this kind of life or that kind of life, and they have this lot or they have that lot. And so if someone suddenly becomes a better person or becomes associated with better behavior, it's, oh, they had a total transformation of character. You know, in the discussion of Basil II, you see this where he goes, oh, well, Basil II was at the beginning of his reign. He was totally immoderate. And then he got good. He just figured things out and he figured things out through experience. So he gained these ethical virtues through the, the hard lessons of experience. He never became philosophical because he didn't receive the kind of education that Michael Sellers thinks emperors need. So he didn't gain the political virtues, but he gained the ethical virtues and those proved uh, in combination with his natural int intuitive talents and abilities to be enough for him to be a successful emperor. Uh, there are other ways of thinking about this, though, that would be consistent with Platonism. So, for instance, in the Republic, there is an extensive discussion about how you produce rulers who have virtues. And instead of, say, going into this whole classification schema of types of virtues in the Republic, uh, and you're therefore being able to rank people in accordance with which type they got and put them in a hierarchy, as Michael Sellos tends to do, in the Republic, you have a discussion of the city as a system for generating types of people and as different systems are, are differently able to generate different types. And you have a discussion in the Republic of uh, specifically what it is that philosopher kings do. So you have, for instance, the discussion of you know, distinguishing between the necessary and the unnecessary desires and allowing for uh, desire to a certain degree in different areas. Now, you have a kind of general sense of, of order here. I'm not going to accuse Michael Sellos of being opposed to desire at large. If anything, Michael Sellos is very careful to acknowledge that politics is always about managing the body. So the body is always present when you're thinking about politics, and you can't just abstract away from that. But I do think that Michael Sellos doesn't think very structurally or systematically about how this is done in the Byzantine Empire. He doesn't frame the Byzantine Empire as a structure or as a system for producing things. His tendency instead is to focus on character traits as a consequence of the education someone receives when they're young. And so because of this, uh, you know, the Republic does talk about the education system, but in Plato's Republic, the education system is situated within an entire political arrangement, an entire distribution of property, an entire a set of rules regarding uh, how everything is organized, how the military is organized. Uh, there's a sense in which the education is part of the whole schema in the Republic, whereas here it's emphasized as a kind of device for getting good behavior out of emperors, and then it's kind of presumed that that will carry forward. And we see a lot of that kind of thinking in contemporary American politics, where uh, people make these civic education arguments that everybody would just be better politically if they had the right kind of civic education and they advocate for kind of progressive or social conservative forms of that, depending on where they sit politically. Uh, but the focus is you know, educate the kids the right way when they're young and then they will be of good character and then good political decisions will naturally follow from that. It treats the education system as the only really relevant point in the system. And it doesn't take into account much of the rest of it. We don't get a lot of discussion in this of the economy, of how things are or ought to be distributed. Uh, and some of the emperors that are criticized for being insufficiently philosophical clearly do think about those things. So, for instance, Basil II, who's criticized for not being very philosophical, institutes a very interesting tax, a very interesting tax the name of which I am going to struggle with because it is a very, very Greek name. And it's the, yeah, maybe you can help me with this, Alex. Maybe you could pronounce it better than I can. The Alalangian uh, or, or, or something to that effect. Yeah. I don't know. Alilegion? Alilegion. Yeah. Yeah. Alilegion. That, that sounds about right. We're, let's go with that. So the Alilegion is a tax which requires the uh, rich Byzantine nobles to pay the tax of the poor of the poor 
because Basil II observes that the poor are often being uh, subject to taxes that they can't really properly pay. And so they're becoming indebted to creditors as a result of this. And uh, then they're getting into situations where they can't pay their creditors. The creditors are demanding that Basil help them extract money from these people who don't have any money. And Basil goes, this is ridiculous. This is not structurally a sustainable system. You can't be taxing and charging the poor to the point where they go deeply into debt and then blaming the poor for the fact that they're in debt. So Basil goes, well, let's have a tax which alleviates this. Now, the tax is very unpopular with the nobles. And as you might expect, when they get an emperor in who's more favorable to their point of view, the tax is repealed. But Basil too refuses to repeal the tax, and the tax lasts for a good 20, 25 years, the rest of, of Basil's reign, uh, and then when Romanos III takes the throne in, I think, uh, 1028, Romanos III repeals it. But Basil II didn't need any kind of philosophical education to spot this. He just thought in a structural way about the tax system and instituted a tax which is, by our standards today, a, a relatively thoughtful tax. And it didn't cause him to be overthrown. He was able to exist politically for decades after, uh, in part because by the time he instituted that tax, he had already established his strength and charisma to a very large degree through pre a previous history of success. Now, bear in mind, I don't want to downplay the uh, critiques of Basil II on the grounds that Basil II was enormously cruel. Part of the way that Basil II established his legitimacy was through ridiculous cruelty. He put out a lot of eyes. He put out eyes of people that were rivals of his in the court. He put, famously put out an enormous number of Bulgarian eyes. He's referred to as the Bulgar Slayer because he uh, defeated the Bulgarians. And according to the story, he broke the Bulgarian army up into centuries, uh, like in the Roman army, centuries of a hundred men blinded in both eyes, 99 out of the 100, and then picked one man out of each 100 to be the centurion and blinded only one eye in the centurion and then had the centurion lead the other men, the, the rest of the 100, home. And in, in this way, he blinded thousands of Bulgarian men. And Bulgarians still regard him as an as a absolutely villainous figure in Bulgarian history. So I do want to acknowledge that Basil II is a complicated figure. But he is politically successful in the sense that he stayed on the throne for a very long time. He uh, expanded the territory of the empire and the territory that he expanded into was not immediately lost. It was not straightforwardly or immediately lost upon his death. So he was able to consolidate it. He didn't just create a problem for the next emperor by expanding into territory that he couldn't sustain. There was a rebellion in the Bulgarian territory he seized, but the rebellion was put down. So by the standards of this period, he would be considered a political success insofar as he lasted a long time, expanded or maintained the borders, and did not create a crisis that the next emperor was saddled with that was unsolvable, right? Uh, well, you know, so that's, that's why I mention all of that context with Basil II. I don't want people to think I don't care about all of that. I do, but we're, we're talking about political success, and that's different from, say, um, being a nice guy, especially in a Byzantine context where nice guys tend to get into trouble. Michael VII doesn't put out John Ducas's eyes. He allows John Ducas to become a monk without being blinded first. And so, of course, when John Ducas sees an opportunity, he leaves the monastery, returns to politics and continues betraying people. If you don't blind people in Byzantine politics, you tend to get into a certain amount of trouble. And that's why blinding becomes such an ubiquitous practice in Byzantine history. Someone who's blinded in, in the Byzantine Empire is considered to, to not have an essential sense required for ruling. If you can't see, how are you supposed to make decisions? You can't observe the enemy's forces. You can't make tactical decisions. You can't lead an army. If you don't have sight, how are you supposed to do any of the things that a Roman emperor is meant to do? So, uh, that's why blinding becomes a common practice. Once you blind someone, nobody thinks they can lead an army, and therefore they're no longer a threat politically. For the Byzantines, this is considered humane relative to killing them. Do, do they have to be considered as able to even lead an army? Because Romanus III leads out these useless expeditions, just pitching up tents in the desert and not really doing anything. His army's not able to adapt to the tactics of the enemy, so, you know, 
they it kind of I think he it mutinies for a bit, and then suddenly just because he's a royal figure, he's able to rally the morale of the people together. Um, yeah, so he doesn't seem to have any aptitude there for leading. It seems more like he stays in power because he then listens to his generals who tell him go back home and start focusing on you know peacetime because this is not a war that you needed to start. So yeah, do they? I mean, obviously you don't want to give too much power to the advisors or the eunuchs or the generals, but it seems like the emperors, they're allowed to kind of put their feet up even and spend a lot of the time in public baths, not really seeing what's going on. Yeah. So in, in Michael Sellos, there is an argument that emperors should know something about military strategy and tactics. That does seem to be part of the royal science and something which emperors seem to need to be competent at. And Michael Sellos is very critical of emperors who aren't competent. We hear so much about Romanos III's uh, excessive fixation on the size of the army, in large part because Michael Sellos thinks it is an example of his demerit as an emperor that he would be incompetent in that way. Uh, there, so there is discussion of emperor's tactical and military abilities. It is something, one of the things that Michael Sellos seems to consider important for an emperor, along with, say, rhetoric and uh, and of course, the, the virtues. That said, there is also a lot of emphasis in this text on the inability of the emperor to be a god. So Michael Sellers compares the emperor a little bit to the demiurge. He brings order to disorder through virtue, through his understanding of the good, right? Just as the demiurge in, say, the Timaeus uh, brings order to disorder through understanding of, of uh, the, the intelligibles. But the emperor is not like the Christian God because the emperor's virtues are incomplete, right? So the demiurge is a little bit limited because the demiurge doesn't, uh, in the original account in the Timaeus and certainly in Plotinus's account, uh, uh, excuse me, not in Plotinus's account, in, in the original account in the Timaeus, the, uh, the demiurge is at a different level from the intelligibles. And so the demiurge's knowledge of the intelligibles is somewhat incomplete. And the demiurge doesn't have total control over the receptacle, over the natural conditions in which the demiurge creates. So the demiurge's ability to bring the intelligibles into reality is somewhat limited. So the demiurge both has a somewhat incomplete understanding of the intelligibles, potentially, and uh, an incomplete ability to realize them through the receptacle. And different Platonists position the Demiurge a bit differently in relation to these things to try to either make the Demiurge out to be more capable or less capable, depending on the preferences of that Neoplatonist. But the important thing is the Demiurge is clearly different from the Christian God insofar as the Christian God's virtue is totalizing, whereas the Demiurge has these obstacles, whether they're obstacles that come from the Demiurge's relationship with the intelligibles or obstacles that come from the Demiurge's relationship to the receptacle or both, the Demiurge is limited while the Christian God has a kind of totalizing virtue. So in likening the emperor to the Demiurge, Michael Sellos is saying that he is, you know, the emperor is always going to be deficient relative to God. The emperor's virtues are going to be incomplete. And because the emperor won't be a master of everything, the emperor needs to listen to advice. The best the emperor can likely do is acquire political virtue, which is virtue based on reason, but still virtue which is focused on the life in the body, not virtue which is focused on the divine life or the life uh, of the soul without the body, right? Political virtue is the highest of the three lower orders. So, because of this, there are always going to be areas where an emperor is deficient. And an emperor could be deficient when it comes to military tactics or strategy, provided that the emperor listens to the right advice. But of course, if the emperor is dependent in military matters, that's a particularly dangerous area for the emperor to be dependent because usurpers tend to be highly talented generals. And if you have to rely on generals, then you need talented generals because you yourself aren't able to be a general. So that increases your risk of falling to usurpers. And if you are challenged by a usurper, you're probably not going to be in position to fight that usurper because you yourself are not very militarily talented. So this is why I think when it comes to the military, it is pretty important for a Byzantine emperor to have some, some ability in that area. It's pretty hard to get by in that area on advice. In lots of other areas of the economy, and of society. 
you could get by with advice. And the advice from Michael Sellos is to use advice to recognize the areas where you don't have expertise and to get advice in those areas. But because of the degree to which the charisma of the emperor depends on this military ability, you do have to be concerned about usurpers. And for instance, in the discussion of Basil, Basil is framed as having, uh, for the most part, adopted advisors who are incompetent uh, or only modestly competent in large part to keep them weak because he himself was militarily highly competent. He was very good at leading armies. He didn't need advisors who were particularly good at their jobs. What he needed was reliable, loyal people. And that's what he tended to favor. Basil uh, is is good enough, but not complete from the point of view of Michael Sellos because he doesn't acquire the philosophical education. He doesn't have political virtue. And he doesn't find a way of listening to advice in areas where he is deficient. But the areas where Basil is sufficient are very important areas. And as a consequence of this, Basil is able to be politically successful, even though he doesn't fit the model of Michael Sellos. Michael VII fits the model of Michael Sellos, but Michael VII is completely ineffective as an emperor. This is the discrepancy that we have to deal with in this work. Uh, there's also a, a one of the things that's really interesting is that there are certain traits that Michael Sellos associates with the divine life or with the higher virtues or with God, like impassivity, inflexibility, or permanence. And he makes a point always to say that these qualities, while they are admirable, are inappropriate for politics. And this is, I think, one of the wiser things that Michael Sellos says. Because politics is about life with the body, bodies are changeable things. And one of the, the things I like to discuss in the Republic is the distinction that's drawn between the necessary desires and the unnecessary desires by Plato. And Plato doesn't rigidly say, these are the necessary desires and these are the unnecessary desires. He says that the unnecessary desires are the desires that most people can't get rid of, right? That's what makes a desire necessary. If most people can't get rid of it, then it's necessary. Now, that's something that can be different depending on the context. Different desires might be desires that most people can't get rid of in you know, some societies rather than others. Like in a society with the internet, you know, using your phone, you know, the desire to use your phone, that might be a desire that most people today cannot get rid of. But that would not be a relevant concern in an ancient society without the internet and without smartphones. So if you do distinguish necessary from unnecessary based on whether most people can get rid of the desire or can easily rein it in, you have a quite flexible distinction that has to be constantly reinterpreted as the context changes as different luxuries become more or less popular or more or less available or more or less ubiquitous. And therefore, if a philosopher king is trying to manage that that management is going to shift over time. It's not going to be the same policy at every point in history and in every situation. Alex, you look like you have a thought. No, I thought like it would be, maybe. Like, regardless of how much the emperor, you know, devotes time to pleasure or thinks too much about succession or doesn't or, you know, court intrigue or lovers or assassins and stuff like that, if there's going to be excess or defects shown, it's going to be known to people. So that passion is kind of discernible as a cause outside experience no matter who's looking at it, but then maybe not, as you said, because there were certain virtues of Basil that seemed to be glossed over and ignored by Zelos, So, yeah. Well, so this is, there's a distinction here. So when we're talking about the emperor's qualities, the emperor needs to be, from the point of view of Zelos, about as virtuous as the emperor can be. So if the emperor can acquire the political virtues, that's great. Beyond that, those higher level virtues are probably not acquirable for an emperor because the emperor has to stay involved in politics and therefore has to stay concerned with bodies. If the emperor tries to run off and do the higher tier virtues, he may get too far removed from actual politics and may become ineffective. Uh, however, I, I'm also talking about when I'm talking about Plato's Republic and that necessary versus unnecessary desires, I'm talking about the way in which the emperor, the philosopher king, shares the order of the inner soul of the inner republic with the outer. So the outer republic is not going to achieve as high a level as the inner. So in the case of the republic, it's not tiered in this strict hierarchical way to the degree that it is in later Neoplatonism. But in the republic, you don't make the producers 
or the auxiliaries into philosophers through the in institutions of Kallipolis. What you do is you manage Kallipolis in such a way that it meets the necessary desires so that it handles the things that the auxiliaries and the producers need to be able to affirm the state without straying into uh, stuff which will enable them to take over the state. The cycle of regimes and republic kicks off because the auxiliaries and the producers are appeased too much or they're allowed to infiltrate the ruling class. And as a consequence of this, the city starts to grant more unnecessary desires. And as unnecessary desires are granted, they expand. You never satiate them. They just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so gradually they become more and more powerful and they sweep aside everything else and dominate the state. So in the Republic, you have to manage this by granting only those desires that are necessary for the state to function. But the desires that are necessary for the state to function, you can't just enumerate them in a list. We can't say, okay, producers need to be given these things and anything beyond that they should be refused because at different points in time, different desires will be necessary in the sense that different desires will be impossible to get rid of, right? And that's a historically contingent thing. So because of this, the distinction between necessary and unnecessary desires is historically contingent. And insofar as politics is about granting the necessary, it's about interpreting what in the moment that contingent distinction means and applying it in a context sensitive way. And that's why it's not appropriate for the philosopher king or the Byzantine emperor to be impassive, inflexible, or fixated on a specific policy that can never change, never be changed. That's almost like an unfair way he does characterize the so-called truth-seeking or philosophic soul compared to Plato, which would, in both cases, they're meant to look for the whole, that principle that unifies all the different particular situations and then see how it applies to those situations. So not be so unflexing, unflexible. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying. It might be. So one way of looking at this is to say that Michael Sellos is slagging off the philosophers insofar as he's accusing philosophers of not being sufficiently concerned with this political stuff, with this embodied stuff. And to some degree, he is criticizing the philosophers of his own time for that. He does think that the philosophers of his own time don't pay enough attention to, to politics, to what, you know, to the royal science. And he thinks that they should pay more attention. I don't think this is to say that he would indict Plato's philosopher kings because Plato's philosopher kings are, because of the way Plato has set the whole thing up, very politically involved, very much involved in making distinctions between necessary and unnecessary desires and trying to apply that in a context sensitive way. What he's, uh, what I think Michael Sellos is trying to argue is that the real philosopher gets involved in politics, recognizes that politics is a science and is part of what the philosopher must be concerned with and expends energy in that domain. Yeah, when he talks about this imaginary man that can escape the body and just reside in, you know, the realm of soul, I think he talks about him as, uh, yeah, just a complete imagination or not something that will ever exist. So right. So in, in Christianity, you have a lot of... of monks who are positioning themselves as if they were living the divine life. And yeah. they try to use the spiritual authority of their divine existence to do things politically. And Michael Sellos is really cheesed off by this because these people are, A, they are trying to get involved in politics, which is, is itself concerned with the life in the body. So if they were really living the divine life in a total way, they wouldn't even be concerned with this. If they were as as divine as they claimed to be, why would they even be making political interventions? Oh, they wouldn't but be mad with the emperors. Sorry. Right. B, because the monks are not at all interested in the sciences that they consider beneath them that are concerned with the physical world, the natural world, the body, uh, human beings as souls in bodies, because they're not interested in those things, they're not competent in those areas, but they pretend to have this competence. They pretend to know what they're doing. And they make political interventions on that basis. So for Michael Sellos, it's very important for politics and, uh, and philosophy to be combined consistently and to be constantly in relationship to each other. So if you run off and engage in just purely contemplative practice, 
you've got to re-engage then with politics. And if anything, he tends to argue that you should engage in the practical stuff before you proceed to contemplation. So if you think about, say, a Greek uh, philosopher, according to Plato's Republic, dialectical training doesn't really begin until you've hit age 30. Now, if you're an Athenian who's 30 years old, chances are you've already been heavily involved in the life of the city for some time up to that point, both because life expectancy in the ancient world was lower and because you probably fought as a hoplite. You've probably been in wars. You've probably experienced how wars are fought. And insofar as these kinds of societies have a lot of war and war is an important part of the politics, you would have gained some insight into the practical matters of how to run a campaign, how to make tactical decisions, how to make strategic decisions about who to fight, where to fight, when to fight. All of that would be evident to you. And so the the guardians in the Republic are, of course, drawn from the auxiliaries. The auxiliaries are the defenders of the city. They are the people who do the soldiering. And the guardians and the auxiliaries are trained together and reared together until the age of 30. So before 30, you would not be able to distinguish a guardian from an auxiliary in the way that they lived or in the kind of, of service they performed. The young men are in the Republic by default auxiliaries until the age of 30 when those who are qualified for dialectic are picked out. So there's an emphasis on practical, practical stuff as a prerequisite in the Republic. And Michael Sellos builds on this and argues that if you are someone who has gone into a monastic life and avoided engagement with politics and engagement with military matters and with the economy and so on, if you then try to go and, and involve yourself in that uh, on the basis of some kind of spiritual authority gained through being a monk, you're liable to screw things up badly because you've done your education in the wrong order. For Michael Sellers, theory is meant to come last. It's the wise advice of the old man who's seen a lot of things. And yet you, what it is to be a philosopher king is someone who doesn't care about the cursus honorum, that kind of system of honors that motivates all the people inside the state. And maybe we could talk more about the cursus honorum because it does seem quite similar to today's kind of model for success or just happiness inside the world as opposed to outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of young Romans and Byzantines would get some level of rhetorical education and potentially philosophical education, but they would get it kind of as an adornment. So the philosophy was not meant to really do very much for them apart from make them cultured, make them able to participate in culture discussion, which would be useful to them politically. It's to give them a set of things to draw on for the purposes of advancing their careers through rhetoric. If you're a rhetorician, but you're not very educated, the set of examples you use will be rather vulgar. You won't be able to present yourself as if you have education. And presenting yourself as if you have education is often more important than having it. Indeed, it's often more advantageous than having it, because if you actually have it, then you might question certain things that you ought not to question politically in that moment. Right? Uh, so, a lot of the emphasis on the education, and Michael Sellos gets very critical about this explicitly, treats philosophical education as an instrument for the purposes of building a career, for the purposes of, of gaining status, instead of treating philosophy as something of intrinsic worth. And Michael Sellis's critique of the Byzantine education system could just as well be applied to, say, the contemporary university system, where many students will spend, say, some time studying social thought or political theory as part of their undergraduate degrees or their master's degrees. And then they'll run off into regular careers, and they won't really put any of that to much use apart from making references to it to sound like they know what they're talking about and to come across as well-educated and well-bred. And to a large degree, the bachelor's degree functions for humanities people as this kind of uh, culturing device. Uh, but it, it doesn't go far enough necessarily to equip someone with the ability to make a contribution to philosophy or a contribution to the field. And so if someone with a bachelor's degree then goes on to graduate school, oftentimes what they'll find is that they're not quite able to give a whole lot of original or useful ideas. And a lot of people who go into a master's program will decide as a consequence of the master's not to bother with the PhD because they find it too unpleasant to try to do original research, or they find they're not cut out for original research in the way that they may have thought they were at the end of the bachelor's. The bachelor's is very introductory in much the same way. The philosophical education given to the statesman 
in Rome uh, or in the Byzantine Empire is a kind of functional instrumental education that doesn't necessarily prepare them to do real philosophy. And so there are numerous points in the chronographia where Michael Sellos accuses different people of having this pseudo education, of having what looks like an education without the thing itself. And Romanos III comes in for heavy, heavy criticism in this department. Romanos III is, is framed as a total poser. And Michael Sellos hates posers. He really hates posers because he thinks he's the real deal. And he's tired of these posers trying to get in and get influence that he thinks rightfully belongs to him because he's a real philosopher who's actually mixing philosophy with politics. When, when you now, think all of, that said, oh, go ahead. No, no, maybe continue. I was just going to say, how, talk about later how he knows, yeah, genuine contemplation of platonic forms to be genuine and not some kind of just armchair theorizing. Yeah, what is it? What is actually experienced? Yeah. But finish. And this is this is, I think, where it gets difficult. And I was kind of going to go in the same direction. So I'm I'm glad that I uh, paused and invited you to come in there. Uh, yeah. In point of fact, Michael Sellos's education system produces Michael the Seventh. Yeah. Tutoring Michael the Seventh illustrates that yeah, you could think that you're giving this kind of training and and really not be giving it. And if you try to turn Platonism into a dogma, which just you know outfits people for rule, if you try to turn it into a credentialing process, it tends to be dysfunctional. And one of the issues I think that we have with the education system is this tendency that we have to want to conflate the academic function of universities with the credentialing function. So the academic function of universities would be, say, just the pursuit of truth, going to the university and, and pursuing truth there and trying to understand things. And then the credentialing function is a preparation for office or for a job, right? Once you use the university for credentialing, then people will go to the university to get status and to get ahead, and they'll treat the academic side of the education as instrumental or functional, and they won't give it its, its due pride of place. And gradually over time, the universities will, uh, to gain social resources frame themselves in terms of we're good at credentialing, we credential really well, we're better at credentialing than our competitors. Universities become more and more absorbed with credentialing, they become more silver and more statusy, right? And this is, you know, just as we talk in, in the Republic about the cycle of regimes, the university comes under the same kind of, of uh, fallen ideology that the state itself comes under. It becomes absorbed in status rather than ac the academic function itself, right? Conversely, if the university is just trying to do academic stuff, it struggles to justify itself to anybody. And there is this imperative to use what we learn to benefit people. But if the university is purely academic and it does no credentialing, then it's very difficult for someone to use what they learn in the university to benefit anybody. The credentialing is what makes it possible for that knowledge to be turned into something that is politically practicable. And this problem that Michael Sellos faces, where he wants an education system that both credentials and uh, has an academic function, is largely the same problem the, with the university system that we still have, where people are asking the university system to do the work of creating a, a benign ruling class. And in the course of doing that, they force the university system to take on a credentialing function which inevitably distorts its ability to do actual academic work. And now it's going even further insofar as the university system is becoming marketized and becoming focused not just on preparing, say, high status elites who are able to sound like they know what they're talking about, but people who are able to get jobs that make a lot of money, which from the point of view of Plato's original value set is a bronze objective for the, for the university system. And increasingly, a, a kind of... Uh, uh, silver-tinted bronze in which status is accumulated in our society by having high-paying jobs. And so now status is not accumulated by pretending like you know academic texts or you know philosophy. It's accumulated by having a lot of money and luxuries and being able to show them off. Insofar as that's the case, then insofar as the university is concerned with status, it's still not really, uh, it, it's even less concerned with philosophy than it was. Silver-tinted bronze is, is, uh, uh, 
Yeah, or, or excuse me, bronze tinted silver is even worse than gold tinted silver. So the accusation from Michael Sellos is that the universities become gold tinted silver in the sense that uh, people are pretending to be interested in philosophy, but they're just interested in status. It's even worse if people are pretending to be interested in money making for the purposes of gaining status, because then their education at no point even superficially interfaces with any of this. So the, the university system uh, and, and the education system inherently has this tension in it when you try to use it to solve social problems. And this is, I think, one of the biggest issues in Platonism is insofar as you think it's important to have, say, a philosopher king class that is able to structure politics on the basis of truth or the good, can, how do you actually have a system which can produce that? And Plato makes an effort to try to give an answer to that question, but most of the Platonists who follow Plato, insofar as they try to answer the question, give rather superficial answers. Well, they seem to give esoteric answers that point to like, yeah, definite criteria if they might be initiated. And so do a lot of orthodox mystics in the Christian church. They would also use similar terminology as the Neoplatonists, talking about esoteric or metaphysical or non-dual states or certain experiences and attainments maybe. And in the chronography, it's not directly mentioned, but it's hinted at when he says things like, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the philosophers that Romanus III surrounded himself with just repeated Platonic forms and Aristotelian syllogism. They didn't look for the hidden meaning behind it. They didn't look for the unity in each specific branch of knowledge. They only went for specific uh, topics that deal with mind, not relating it back to science and maths and the whole universe. So... But it doesn't, he doesn't talk about it explicitly, like in philosophical works. I think De Omniferia, which I don't know if actually is translated in English, but in a journal, journal article, I saw some, yeah, some quotes. And he basically uses Proclus to explain how a philosopher king or just someone interested in philosophy who wants to practice it rather than just think about it can work their way up to, yeah, to more unified experiences, ideally up to the one. In, in much the same way as the Orthodox mystics talk about, and they validate that as well. So it's interesting. There are kind of maybe hidden criteria for, yeah. for, yeah, for non-status knowledge. Yeah, the trouble seems to be anytime we try to find an actual person who has done this to Michael Sellos' satisfaction, we're either told that the people claiming to have done it haven't done it, or the people that he says did it turn out to not be very effective as emperors. Uh, yeah. So this is this is the question here. Uh, if there is a way to do this that's just esoteric or not written down by these Platonists, why is it that we can't seem to find any institution that gets established by Platonists which reliably produces philosopher kings of this type? Mm. Well, could we talk about the monasteries in the Orthodox Church? They don't produce kings, obviously, but certainly spiritual council and the monasteries are not separate from the church in the sense that the church would be involved in the day-to-day -day life of the citizens and the insights of the monasteries would be, you know, yeah. Yes. Michael Sellos rags quite a bit on these monks and on these well, monasteries. He doesn't the, seem to think that they pull it off. <laughs> yeah, but those aren't the monasteries he's talking about. I mean, the Orthodox mystics would be in complete poverty and ceaseless prayer, whereas the monasteries Sellos is talking about are the rich, lavish ones. And I think Emperor Basil and Isaac make the same joke. It's like, now I've made it a real place of meditation. When they take away all the wealth out of the monastery, I think the idea is, and the emperor seemed to realize this as well. Yeah, now the monks are doing actual practice. They've taken away the luxury. Right, actual, yeah. So I think there's an argument here that there is a kind of way in which someone could spiritually organize life so that they could get access to these higher virtues. Uh, Michael Sellos doesn't say that it's impossible to get access to the higher virtues, just that the monks that tend to get involved in politics don't have access to those virtues. And uh, are insofar as they do, they clearly don't understand how those virtues interface or don't interface with politics. And one of the things that I think is, is so the people that he is ascribing those higher virtues to are not politically involved really at all. They're certainly not Roman emperors, right? And then, you know, one of the things that is, I think, a little bit different about Michael Sellos is the degree to which he draws a line between these higher virtues and politics. So he identifies the political virtues as the highest category within the lower set. And the lower set are the are all the human political embodied virtues. Iamblichus 
framed theurgy as a very important uh, you know, real-world thing that needs to be done. And followers of Iamblichus tried to get philosophers who had theurgical virtues structuring the religious life of the Roman Empire. Right. So under Julian, you get this emphasis on actually building a kind of paganism that is uh, led by people with theurgic virtue. So you have political involvement of those with theurgic virtue. In Michael Sellos, you don't get that. <laughs> yeah, he says in a philosophical text that deals with theurgic virtue that we, even though it's ideal that, you know, God separates the wheat from the chaff and so-called the highest you know, the best people are made into their own kind of caste, like a Brahmin caste, whatever. Uh, yeah, we'd be well-placed to just obey political virtues. And it's, yeah, it's weird. I mean, what is theurgic virtue? Is it simply just a person can play the role of a priest while at a sacrifice? Is it some kind of deep skill at concentration? Does that concentration lead into any, like, occult competence or any kind of ability to have unity or, like, into non-dual states? Or is it just simply, yeah, a reputation? It's, it's weird because it's ranked above theoretical contemplation, which is... Well, I think the value of, of theurgy in Iamblichus is that if you have theurgic virtue, then you know what kind of theurgic rituals are necessary to get people who otherwise are not able to access the good to feel in a very visceral way the good and to experience it in such a way that they can be guided by it. So the force of theurgy is that it reaches people who for Iamblichus, because human souls are not in the level of the intelligibles, they don't have a foot in the realm of the intelligibles, need this experience to be viscerally put in mm. touch with the good. And so the theurgist knows what experiences are necessary and gives them to the people who need them, right? So if you actually want the population to be good, live good lives, etc., then you would seem to, on a Yamblican view, you would seem to need this theurgy in their day-to-day -day lives. Now, you could imagine, say, wanting to separate this into two different things and say that, uh, you know, that the priest should do theurgy and the emperor is not a priest and should stay out of that. But in the Byzantine Empire, you don't have that kind of neat line drawn because the Byzantine emperor is, of course, the head of the church, is it in, in the Caesaro papist sense. And uh, not that the church just does or, or affirms whatever the emperor believes, but that the emperor and the church are always in a dialogue and the church is never presumed to be depoliticized or external to politics. So, and this enabled, by the way, the, the, uh, people who came after Iamblichus, including Julian, to imagine that the Roman emperor could institute a pagan church. And that's what Julian tries to do. He tries to construct a pagan church in part based on his own understanding of philosophy and empowering those that he takes to understand pagan philosophy. So this relies in large part on Julian himself having engaged with Neo Neoplatonist philosophy and having some kind of view of how to structure it because there's an acknowledgement that the state has to be involved in the structuring and in the protecting of this thing. And of course, that also means that there is an invitation for the church to become involved in politics because the theurgist is, insofar as the emperor is trying to share the inner republic with the outer, the theurgist is trying to get people who otherwise couldn't see the good or engage with it to do that. So that is a kind of sharing of an inner virtue with the with the outer, the person who experiences the theurgist ritual does not thereby necessarily obtain theurgic virtue, but it guides them on a path toward virtue that helps them, meets them where they're at, gets them where they need to go. So that does seem to be political work insofar as the emperor is sharing with the external republic the order that exists internally. But we do not get in Michael Sellos this argument that the emperor needs to engage with that kind of stuff or have those kinds of virtues uh, or that there is any set of people who have those kinds of virtues and can do politics. If anything, the divine life and the virtues associated with divinity in Michael Sellos are associated with people who are totally outside the realm of politics, keeping them far out of the line of competition with Michael Sellos, which is where he likes them. Mm -hmm far out of cont contesting with him for uh, authority or uh, a, a position within the imperial court. 
that's where he likes people living the divine life. Uh, so I think I think there are still a lot of of conundrums that we're left with coming out of this, and I, I don't think that Michael Sellos solves them. But by engaging with Michael Sellos and with these this Byzantine history, we're able to see a little bit of what happens if somebody really takes this Platonism quite seriously, combines it with a political life, because in the Western church and in Western Europe during this time, you don't have access to a Greek. You don't have very wide access to Platonist texts. A lot more of the political philosophy is Aristotelian in character. And so you don't get this uh, Plato-inflected interfacing with the political to the degree that you do in the Byzantine context. So I think it's interesting to kind of explore that and to see, you know, insofar as it solves problems, what problems does it solve? Insofar as it doesn't solve problems, what problems does it leave unsolved? Uh, there, there still seems to be a lot of disagreement among Platonists about what the role of theurgy can be in society, about uh, whether we're, we're thinking in terms of structures or the particular character of particular emperors, about the mechanisms by which the order of the inner republic are shared with the outer. There's a lot still not resolved here. And perhaps that's where we'll have to leave it for today because we're, we're over an hour. So... We're going to keep thinking about this stuff. I think Alex wants to do Zizek next because we've been doing this thing where we hop from an early to a kind of middle, you know, medieval or early modern and then to somebody more contemporary. And the last couple of times we did this, we we sort of um, we haven't gone that contemporary. I mean, anytime you kind of pitch doing Harrington as if he's a contemporary theorist, you know that you're really, really uh, favoring old stuff and maybe lately we've been favoring old stuff too much so we're going to do somebody who's still alive we're going to do Zizek and I think the main thing we're going to read for that is um, what's the name of the text Alex? Absolute Recoil that's right we're going to do Absolute Recoil we're going to do it nice and thorough so that's what we'll be doing next time thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye thank you 